Chapter 16 of Trails End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Chestnut. Trails End by George W. Ogden. Chapter 16 The Meat Hunter Comes. The few courageous and hopeful ones who remained loyal to Morgan were somewhat assured. The doubtful ones agitated a bit more in their indecision when he appeared on horseback a little past the turn of day. These latter people, whose courage had leaked out overnight, now began to weigh again their business interests and personal safety in the balance of their wavering judgment. Morgan on horseback looked like a lucky man. They admitted that much more lucky, indeed, than he had appeared that morning when he went limping around the square. It was a question whether to come over to his side again, openly and warmly, or to hold back until he proved himself to be as lucky as he looked. A man might as well nail up his door and leave town as fall under the disfavor of Seth Craddock. So while they wavered, they were still not quite convinced. Prominent among the businessmen who had revised their attitude on reform as the shadow of Seth Craddock approached Ascalon was Earl Gray, the druggist, one of the notables on Dora Conboy's waiting list. Druggist Gray was a man who wore bell-bottomed trousers and a moleskin vest without a coat. His hair had a fetching crinkle to it, which he prized above all things in bottles and out, and wore long like the man on the label. There was so much hair about Mr. Gray, counting mustache and all, that his face and body seemed drained and attenuated by the contribution of sustenance to keep the adornment flourishing in its brown abundance. For Gray was a tall, thin, bony-kneed man, with long, flat feet like wedges of cheese. His eyes were hollow and melancholy, as if he bore a sorrow. His nose was high and bony, and bleak in his sharp, thin-cheeked face. Gray expressed himself openly to the undertaker, in whom he found a cautious but warm supporter of his views. There would be fevers and ills with Asklun closed up, Gray said he knew very well, just as there would be deaths and burials in the natural course of events under the same conditions. But there would be neither patches for the broken, stitches for the cut, nor powders for the headaches of debauchery called for then as now, and all the burying there would be an undertaker might do under his thumbnail. They'd go to drugging themselves with bonnet tea and mulling tea and bitter root powders and wahoo bark, said Gray. Likewise, they'd turn to burying one another after the ways of pioneers who were as resourceful in deaths and funerals as in drugs and fomentations. Pioneers such as would be left in that country after Morgan had shut Ascalon up and driven away those who were dependent on one another for their skinning and fleecing, filching and plundering, did not lean on any man. Such as came there to plow up the prairies would be of the same stuff rough-barked men and women who called in neither doctor to be born nor undertaker to be buried. It was a gloomy outlook. The town closed up and everybody gone, said Gray. What would a man do with his building? What would a man do with his stock? 
Maybe Craddock ain't no saint and angel, but he makes business in this town, said Gray. Makes business, the undertaker echoed with abstraction and looking far away as if he already saw the train of oncoming, independent, self-burying pioneers over against the horizon. If this feller's luck don't go agin him, you might as well ship all your coffins away but one. They'll need one to bury the town in. What do you think of him riding around the depot there, drawing a deadline that no man ain't gonna be allowed to cross till the 120 pulls out? Kind of high-handed deal, I call it. I've got a case of shrouds coming in by express on that train. Two cases laying in my place waiting on em, the undertaker said resentfully, waking out of his abstraction and apparent apathy. You have, said Gray, eyeing him suddenly. You stopped me as I was going over to wait around till the train come in, drove me back like I was a cow. He said it didn't make no difference how much business I had at the depot, it would have to wait till the train was gone. When a citizen and a taxpayer of this town can't even cross the road like a Shanghai rooster, things is coming to a hell of a pass. Well, I ain't got no business at the depot this afternoon, or I bet you a cracker I'd be over there, Gray boasted. I think I'll close up a while and go down to the hotel where I can see better. It's only four minutes till she's due. Might as well. Everybody's down there. You won't sell as much as a pack of gum till the train's gone and this thing's off people's minds. Gray went in for his hat to spend a good deal of time at the glass behind his prescription case, setting it at the most seductive slant upon his luxuriant brown curls. This was an extremely enticing small hat, just a shade lighter brown than the druggist's wavy hair. It looked like a cork in a bottle placed by a tipsy hand as druggist Gray passed down the street toward the hotel to post himself where he might see how well Morgan's luck was going to hold in this encounter with the meat hunter of the Cimarron. As the undertaker had said, nearly everybody in Ascalon was already collected in front and in the near vicinity of the hotel fringing the square in gay, splotched crowds. Beneath the canopy of the Elkhorn Hotel many were assembled, as many indeed as could conveniently stand, for that bit of shade was a blessing on the sun-parched front of Ascalon's bleak street. Business was generally suspended in this hour of uncertainty. Public feeling was drawn as tight as a banjo head in the sun. In the courthouse, the few officials and clerks necessary to the county's business were at the windows looking upon the station, all expecting a tragedy of such stirring dimensions as Ascalon never had witnessed. The stage was set. The audience was in waiting. One of the principal actors stood visible in the wings. With the rush of the passenger train from the east, Seth Craddock would make his dramatic entry, in true color with his violent notoriety and prominence in the cast. Unless friends came with Craddock, these two men would hold the stage for the enactment of that swift drama alone. Morgan, silent, determined, inflexible, had drawn his line around the depot across which no man dared to pass. No friend of Craddock should meet him for support of warning word or armed hand. No innocent one should be jeopardized by a curiosity that might lead to death. The moving question now was, had Peden's gun-notable friends joined Craddock? 
If so, it would call for a vast amount of luck to overcome their combined numbers and dexterity. Morgan was troubled by this same question as he waited in the saddle where the sun bore hot upon him at the side of the station platform. About there, at that point, the station agent had told him, the smoking car would stand when the train came to a stop, the engine at the water tank. When Craddock came down out of the train, would he come alone? Morgan was mounted on the horse borrowed from Stillwell, an agile young animal, tractable and intelligent. A yellow slicker was rolled and tied at the cantle of the saddle. At the horn, a coil of brown rope hung pliant and smooth from much use upon the range among cattle. Morgan's rifle was slung on the saddle in its worn scabbard, its battered stock from which the varnish had gone long ago in the hard usage of many years close to the rider's hand. It needed no announcement of wailing whistle or clanging bell to tell Ascalon of the approach of a train from the east. In that direction, the fall of the land toward the Arkansas River began many miles distant from the town, seeming to blend downward from a great height which dimmed out in blue haze against the horizon. A little way along this high pitch of land, before it turned down the grade that led into the river valley, the railroad ran transversely. The moment a train mounted this land's edge and swept along the straight transverse section of track, it was in full sight of Ascalon, day or night, except in stormy weather, although many miles away. A man still had ample time to shine his shoes, pack his valise, put on his collar and coat, if he wore them, walk to the depot and buy his ticket after the train came in sight on top this distant hill. Once the train headed straight for Ascalon, it dropped out of sight, and one unused to the trend of things might wonder if it had gone off on another line. Presently it would appear again, laboring up out of a dip, rise the intervening billow of land, small as a toy that one could hold in the hand, and sink out of sight again. This way it approached Ascalon, now promising, now denying, drawing into plainer sight with every rise. On this particular afternoon, when the sun-baked people of Ascalon stood waiting in such tensity of expectation that their minds were ready to crack like the dry, contracting earth beneath their feet, it seemed that nature had laid off that land across which the railroad ran with the sole view of adding to the dramatic value of Seth Craddock's entry in this historic hour. Certainly art could not have devised a more effective means of whetting the anxiety, straining the suspense, than this. When the train first came in sight over the hill, there was a murmur a movement of feet as people shifted to points believed to be more advantageous for seeing the coming drama. Watches clicked. Comments passed on the exactness to the schedule. Breaths were drawn with fresh tingling of hope or falling of doubt and despair. Morgan was watching that far skyline for the first smoke, for the first gleam of windows in the sun as the train swept round the curve, heading for a little while into the north. He noted the murmur and movement of the watchers as it came in sight, wondered if any breast but one was agitated by a pang of friendly concern, wondered if any hand loosed weapon in its sheath to strike in his support if necessity should call for such intervention. 
He knew that Retta Thayer stood in the shade of the bank with her father and others. He was cheered by the support of her presence to witness his triumph or fall. Now, as the train swept into the first obscuring swale, Morgan rode around the depot again to see that none had slipped through either in malice or curiosity. Only the station agent was in sight, pulling a truck with three trunks on it to the spot where he estimated the baggage car would stop. Morgan rode back again to take his stand at the point where arrivals by train crossed from the depot into town. His left hand was toward the waiting crowd, kept back by his injunction fifty yards or more from the station, his right toward the track on which the train would come. Conversation in the crowd fell away. Peden, garbed in his long coat, was seen shouldering through in front of the hotel, the nearest point to the set and waiting stage. As always, Peden wore a pistol strapped about him on an ornate belt, the holster carrying the weapon under the skirt of his coat. His presence on the forward fringe of the crowd seemed to many as an upraised hand to strike the waiting horseman in the back. Morgan saw Peden when he came and took his stand there, and saw others in his employ stationed along the front of the line. He believed they were there to throw their weight on Craddock's beam of the balance the moment they should see him outmastered and outweighed. Because he mistrusted these men, because he did not know, indeed, whether there was a man among all those who had pledged their moral support who would lift a hand to aid him, even if summoned to do so, Morgan kept his attention divided, one eye on the signs and portents of the crowd, one on keeping the depot platform clear. Morgan did not know whether even Judge Thayer and the men who had guarded the bank with him would risk one shot in his defense if the outlawed forces should sweep forward and overwhelm him. He doubted it very much. It was well enough to delegate this business to a stranger, one impartial between the lines, but they could not be expected to turn their weapons on their fellow townsmen and depositors in the bank, no matter how their money came, no matter how much the law might lack an upholding hand. The train came clattering over the switch, safety valve roaring, bell ringing as gaily as if arriving in Ascalon were a joyous event in its day. Conductor and brakeman stood on the steps, ready to swing to the platform. The express messenger lolled with bored weariness in the door of his car, scorning the dangerous notoriety of the town by exposing to the eye all the box treasure that it contained. Passengers crowded platforms, leaning and looking ready, ready to alight for a minute so they might be able to relate the remainder of their lives how they braved the perils of Ascalon one time and came out unsinged. A movement went over the watching people of the town, assembled along its business front, as wind ripples suddenly a field of grain. Nobody had breath for a word. Dry lips were pressed tightly in the varying emotions of hope, fear, expectancy, desire. Morgan was seen to be busy for a moment with something about his saddle. It was thought he was drawing his rifle out of its case. Nearly opposite where Morgan waited, the first coach of the train stopped. Instantly, like children freed from school, the eager passengers poured off for their adventurous breath of this most wicked town's intoxicating air. Morgan's whole attention was now fixed on the movement around the train. 
he shifted his horse to face that way, risking what might develop behind him, one hand engaged with the bridle rein, the other seemingly dropped carelessly on his thigh. And in that squaring of expectations, that pause of breathless waiting, Seth Craddock descended from the smoking car, his alpaca coat carried in the crook of his left elbow, his right hand lingering a moment on the guard of the car step. The hasty ones who had waited on the car platform were down ahead of him, standing a little way from the steps. Others who wanted to get off came pressing behind him, in their ignorance that they were handling a bit of Ascalon's most infernal furnishing, pushing him out into the timid crowd of their fellows. A moment Craddock stood, taller than the tallest there, sweeping his glance about for signs of the expected hostility the trinkets of silver on the band of his costly new sombrero shining in the sun. Then he came striding among the gaping passengers, like a man stalking among tall weeds, something unmistakably expressive of disdain in his carriage. There he paused again and put on his coat, plainly mystified and troubled by the absence of townspeople from the depot, and the sight of them lined up across the square as if they waited a circus parade. All that he saw between himself and that fringe of puzzling, silent people was a cowboy sitting astraddle of his bay horse at the end of the station platform. And as Craddock started away from the crowd of curious passengers who were whispering and speculating behind him, pointing him out to each other, wondering what notable he might be, as Craddock started down the platform away from there, the voice of the conductor warning all to clamber aboard, the waiting cowboy tightened the reins a little, causing his horse to prick up his ears and start with a thrill of expectancy which the rider could feel ripple over its smooth hide under the pressure of his knees. Craddock came on down the platform, turning his head on his long neck in the way of a man entirely mystified and suspicious, alone, unsupported by even as much as the shadow of a strange gunslinger or local friend. What was passing through the fellow's head, Morgan could pretty well guess. There was a little break of humor in it, for all the tight-drawn nerves, for all the chance, for all the desperation of the gathering moment. The grim old killer couldn't make out whether it was through admiration of him the people had gathered to welcome him home, or in expectation of something connected with the arrival of the train. Two rods or so from where Morgan waited him, Craddock stopped to look back at the train, now gathering slow headway, and around the deserted platform down which the station agent came dragging a mail sack. It was when he turned again from this suspicious questioning into things which gave him back no reply that Craddock recognized the hitherto unsuspected cowboy. In a start, he stiffened to action, flinging his hand to his pistol. But a heart beat quicker, like the flash of sunbeam from a mirror, the coiled rope flew out from Morgan's high-flung arm. As the swift running noose settled over Craddock's body, the horse leaped at the pressure of its rider's knees. Craddock fired as the flying rope snatched him from his feet, the noose binding his arms impotently to his sides. In his rage he fired again and again, as he dragged in ludicrous tangle of long, thrashing legs from the platform into the dust. There, in a cloud of obscuring dust from the trampled road, the horse holding the line taut, 
Morgan flung from the saddle in the nimble way of a range man, bent over the fallen slayer of men a little while. When the first of the crowd came breaking across the broad space intervening and drew up panting and breathless in the admiration of the bold thing they had witnessed, Seth Craddock laid hogtied and harmless on the ground, one pistol a few feet from where he struggled in his ropes, the other in the holster at his side. And there came Judge Thayer, in his capacity as mayor, officious and radiant, proud and filled with a new feeling of safety and importance, and took the badge of office from Craddock's breast in all haste, as if it were the most important act in this spectacular triumph, this bloodless victory over a bloody man. End of chapter 16 Recording by Jeff Chestnut.